Hey guys, you are now listening to the Maranatha House podcast. Let's get started. All right, so we're going to continue our communion teaching, our talk on communion. Um, Just a a refresher, the reason I felt like I wanted us to go through communion was because um, I was listening to a couple podcasts that came up on it, and I was like, honestly, I have always done uh, communion, but just kind of done it because that's what you do and like you know there were times when I like realized oh yeah communion is pretty good you should do it because it's a good thing but I didn't really understand why I didn't understand any theology on it I had never had somebody teach it you know to me or um, give a sermon on it I like it was always just assumed you know you just read it it's very black and white and so um, actually one of the podcasts I listened to was like Francis Chan um, talking about it, and he's like, I love Francis. Yeah, Francis is amazing. I have not read as much as I want to. Yeah. He's, mm. I just, I, more than anything about Francis, I appreciate his heart. Yeah. He comes from a circle of people that's like very like doctrine sound and any all this man, stuff. Any man who goes, I have the mega church, I need to be over here to yeah. the inner city. Walks, yeah, and basically walks up on stage in front of his mega church and says, guys, what we've been doing is wrong and broken. I can't be a part of this anymore, I'm and I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, for it. <laughs> I, I think we should all attain to be yeah. humble, like you know, yeah. Francis. Uh, uh, ultimately, like Jesus. Yeah. But he's like one of the clearer he's pictures right of now, humility. Yeah. So, so anyway, he had a um, talk with the Remnant Radio guys about communion and how. Um, He's always, he said, kind of similar to me, he always viewed it as just this thing we did, um, but there wasn't this, like, reverence to it, and there was, that was a big thing that he realized was lacking in, like, comparing it to, like, the Holy of Holies, you know, that the Holy of Holies people in the Old Testament didn't just walk up into the Holy of Holies and, like, parade around. Like, that's how you died. Like, that's how you got struck dead. And so, he was like, and for me as a pastor... It would it, the equivalent of what I've done is almost like setting up the Holy of Holies and just said, "Don't you know, go in there," and then walked away and left it unattended. And um, he want, wants to correct that, so he brought his house church all together. They did like four teachings uh, on like communion, and it was really good. Um, but it just it it inspired me because I was like, "Man, this is something that I've just kind of done, kind of with my eyes closed. You know, I've just done it to be doing it." And I just want to understand why we do it, you know. So, um, does anybody who was here for two weeks ago when we talked about? I think I was here for part of it. You were here for part of it. Gab was here because I remember us talking about how the high priest had bells on his robe. And oh yeah, he required to continue walking around in the holy of holies because if he stopped, yep. that was he probably died. So let's right. pull on the rope that's tied to him. <laughs> It's kind of like the poltergeist. But, uh, <laughs> no. Is this the one that's on the podcast? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you did that. listen to it. Cool. Yeah. So I don't know if somebody wants to give like a brief synopsis of what we talked about. 
Or just what what did you take from it, you know? I I think what I from what I recall, what I really took from it was um the act of communion or I guess the sacrament I think is the right mm-hmm. word for it, mm-hmm. of communion. Mm-hmm. Um it being important to remember mm-hmm. like what the Lord has done, but also to be hopeful and look to the future. Yeah. Of what's to come. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that was the big thing for me, I think, with communion, I've always been like, at some point, I think actually with, within IDH, when we, we did, somebody did a teaching of communion, uh-huh. maybe talked about it, did a little blurb or whatever, but the idea was that you don't want to take communion if there are, if you, if you're, first of all, living in sin, right? if there's sins that you've committed, or even like offs that you have with your brother, you want to do your best to reconcile that first yeah, yeah. Um, before you take communion. Yeah, yeah. And so... That I'd been thinking on whenever I would take communion yeah. and just being like, oh, I want to wait. If there's anything, yeah. I want to be able to repent of that, turn yeah. away from it, and turn back to the to the Father. Um, and make sure I do that. And then I also, of course, remember like the sacrifice of Jesus. But I didn't really, I, there was no looking forward yeah. of being like, oh, this, this hope that is to come, like him returning. And so I think that's something I really took with me. Yeah. Um, that is Remembering, but also looking forward to as well. Yeah, that's huge. That that to me was like my favorite part. Was so obviously because I didn't learn much about uh, like the end times growing up in church, except one Sunday school class where they just had a bunch of pictures put up on the wall that are depicting these terrifying things. For however old I was, I think it was probably like sixth grade. Just like. Uh, this is scary as crap. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so that's Jesus. That's Jesus. What? <laughs> yeah, and I just think, uh, I think, at least in my experience and what I've heard, I just feel like many Western churches neglect the end times teachings because it's scary or too hard to understand. And what I've found in my like last two years of study is. The end times makes everything right now so much clearer, and why wouldn't I? Like, I've even gone as far as to say, like, with a new believer, you know, people ask that question, with a new believer, what book should they read first? And some people will say Genesis or John. And, you know, to be honest, I almost feel like Revelation would be a great place to start because of how much it calls back to the Old Testament. Because if you read it right and you go through it right, you're going to get the whole story of the Bible through the book of Revelation. So some people can debate on that. Uh, that's fine. I, I understand some of it might be scary, but... I'm starting the weirdest book. Yeah. <laughs> well, everything's easy from there, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that, and that's just my, you know... I, I don't know if I'd actually say that. I probably would say you also John. You to see, like, the end from the beginning, which is, like, yeah. you see you win. Right. Like, we'll all win. Right. So it's nice to know. We might lose battles yeah. if we win the war. personally you should probably start in Genesis Gospel of John would be a good synopsis and then Revelation that's probably a great read those three you got like all the bookends in the middle Um, but anyway that's beyond the point so yeah so um, so yeah I'm glad you caught that because that to me is like the biggest thing is how much the communion meal is tied to a future aspect rather than just a here and now present thing that we're just doing because we're supposed to do it. Um, you know, a couple of things we talked about too that we'll still talk about today is how it was tied to the Passover. 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, w- our faith is rooted in Judaism. And so, like, when Jesus did the Last Supper and he was like, I've longed to have this meal with you guys, it was the Passover meal. We talked about how um, there was different aspects of the Passover meal that kind of prophesy, you know, Jesus throughout it. And now, you know, they had the cup of Elijah that, you know, they lay out a cup at the meal for Elijah to come because it's a prophetic thing that they believe Elijah's going to come back in the end, which is a reference to the yeah. two witnesses. And I, I believe it's typically an empty cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they, I think they do fill it, is it at some point. Yeah, yeah, it just sits but they, they it's an empty seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's what's been fun is every time I've done Passover with Ron and Kate, yeah, we've then done communion using that cup afterward. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool because that's the cup that Jesus takes and goes and share this. Yeah. Yep, this is the last cup. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we just tied a lot of the, the Jewish mindset, which we've learned is very circular in the Jewish mind. Things that happened in the Old Testament are going to be recycled in the New because that's just how time works for a Jewish person's mind. Um, yep. So anyway. There is nothing new under the sun. Right, exactly. Ecclesiastes? Yep, Ecclesiastes. Um, so today I want to go more into the mode and... The, maybe the liturgy, the how-to of how to do it. And I'll be totally honest with you. <laughs> now your comment makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, and the more you study it, the more you realize that there is so many opposing views on this. Oh, yeah. And there's really not a ton of clarity on certain points. Yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do today is just share four main views that there are when it comes to communion and how to do it. Um, and then we're going to go through just a couple passages in Scripture. First Corinthians is definitely going to be one because that's really the only place that we have a laid-out theology of this is how you should do it and why you shouldn't do it and all this stuff. We'll talk about John 6, which is a passage that a lot of people like to bring into the communion and try to explain this is communion theology, um, which I don't know if it is all the way. And then we'll just talk about um, how we will practice it moving forward. And uh, like that, that part is going to be more conversational because I think we're going to have to come to an agreement together. The basis that I see of the communion meal is that it's focused around unity, the body being united. Yes. And so the last thing I want is disunity. The last thing I want is us being angry at each other because we look at this thing different. Uh, let's come to a happy medium and believe, like, and trust the Lord in it. Cool? So, um, let's pray real quick before we go in. Okay, go ahead. I have a single question, which is, sure. have, you, have you come across slash considered at all the concept of closed table or barring the table? I've heard the phrase. Explain by closed table what you mean. So, it's... Not <laughs> It's a. This is this is probably going to be a teaching in the future, honestly. Yeah, sure. Um, but it's the position that the communion supper is so holy that the table has to be closed to unbelievers, mm-hmm. so that like the church that I grew up in, the elders and such would have to vet anybody that would right. come. And like if you if you were from a church in the denomination or a church that they knew believed the gospel 
gospel and yeah. were remembering good standing, they were like, that's good enough for them. But like, children that hadn't made a profession of faith couldn't be, and I noticed you kind of did this mm -hmm. when you checked two weeks ago with Karina's, your right. cousin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But like that sort of thing where it's like, this is so important that we're going to like, yes. we are responsible for protecting the body of Christ yes. and making sure that people don't just come in here willingly. Right, like, right. And even, <clears throat> and even as an act of love for that person. Yeah, that no, absolutely. That's, yeah, absolutely. Because the rules still stand whether you believe in them or not. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever the consequences are going to be, that still exists even if you don't believe right. that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Moses didn't send in the children into the Holy of Holies to do the priest job, right. you know. It was the priests. I was just and, curious yeah. whether that was something you'd touch Yeah, I, I think I've come across the closed table thing. I don't know if I'd, like, agree to the whole thing, but there are definitely situations in which I would say that you shouldn't take the communion. Yeah. And, and we'll kind of talk about that. And that's essentially worth us looking into yeah. as we, like... Yeah. Pin down our theology, theology on it. Yeah, totally. I feel like, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn, but like I feel like our heart would be more that you're doing the assessment of yourself to see yeah. if you should take it rather than you being like, you cannot. That's, that's For the kids deal. that haven't made a profession, that feels like easy to me. Or like someone who we know isn't a Christian, but like for individual, like, Assessments. Yeah, you're totally right. And the thing with the close table is not so much like, like we as a group wouldn't make that decision for Gabby unless Gabby was like openly living in sin. Right? Yeah. Gabby, like, you're not, not a believer, but I do believe. No table <laughs> for you. No table. <laughs> no. So just it gets I, yeah, weird that you're, way. you're yeah. right. Okay. In your thinking there. Yeah. yeah. It's not quite that. So, yeah, we, we, we will touch on that today, and we'll probably touch on it in the future, too, as we begin to continue to expound our theology on this. Because, right. as I found, the last month I've been studying this, and it's just not enough time. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a really heavily debated topic. But anyway, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. So, Papa, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the table. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And um, we just ask today... Uh, Father, that you would give us deeper revelation, deeper wisdom and understanding of this topic. Uh, that we would <clears throat> understand your heart and commanding us to do it. Um, and that we wouldn't uh, just do it because it's a tradition of man. God, uh, we're not trying to force something to happen in the table, but we're trying to encounter what you intended to happen at the table. Um, and so we just um, <clears throat> we submit to you today. Um, I just pray that my words would be your words today and um, that you would open up every ear and every heart to hear and understand that which you are speaking today. So we just invite you to move in this room and be glorified throughout all of our conversation. In Jesus' name, everybody say it. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to try to go through this part a little faster, but the, there's four basic views on the table and how to approach the table, how to practice it. Um, and I'm kind of going to go through the four of them briefly. If you want to learn more about it, I've got some uh, uh, resources you can go watch and listen to to learn more and where I found it from. Uh, <clears throat> so first view that's pretty predominant in uh, mainly the Roman Catholic Church is transubstantiation. So it's a big word. Trans just means to change, and then substantiation is the word substance, changing of substance. And so 
what the Roman Catholics believe happened when you take communion is that the bread physically, it, it stays bread, it looks like bread, it feels like bread, it tastes like bread, but it is actually the body of Jesus. It is his literal body. So they take what Jesus says at the Last Supper is, this is my body as a literal wording. And then this is my blood, that the wine is actual wine, that it supernaturally transforms into Jesus' blood as you drink it. Um, And this is, I believe that's something Lutherans believe as well. It's close. Luther actually rejects uh, transubstantiation, but his beliefs are very eerily similar, if that makes sense. Um, so that's one of the other views we'll talk about. But yeah, so this this is like the main Catholic view, and I think a lot of Western Christians, they will reject it without really understanding why. Um, it's the Catholic thing, therefore it's not our thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I, I was listening to this, uh, one guy, Dr. Michael Heiser, and he was like, you know, if this is true, if that's his actual body and actual blood, do we, like, basically, for lack of a better term, do we poop? out his body and pee out his blood like do we he's saying you gotta ask the question because if it's actually his blood and body then you actually poop and pee his blood out you you actually like if the crumb spills then it's his actual body falling on the ground and that's a huge no-no you're just disrespecting his body if you spill his blood like oh my gosh you know so i don't remember if this is true. Anglicans, if they also uh-huh. believe it, they may, because Anglicans are basically Reformed Catholics. Sure. But, they didn't think but, they were changing it very hard. Yeah. Like church and college. Yeah. So, okay. Hey. Nice. Um, <laughs> another point of connection. <laughs> <laughs> they, there's, a, there's a particular way that you then have to dispose of the stuff right. afterward, because it's now the body and the blood, which is usually just the priest mm-hmm. eating the rest of the host and drinking the rest of the wine. Yeah. Oh, but, special. <laughs> he gets extra body yeah. tonight. Well, there's a thing too. Even so, my one of my best friends from college is Roman Catholic, and I was out with them. And apparently, like recently, like the priest like spilled some drops, like and you have to like cross it and then do something. I lost track and not. It's not like there's a whole process if you spill a drop of like wine juice, whatever. It's like in uh, yeah. Monsters Inc. when a sock lands on yes. the <laughs> monster. That's the best. Yeah. I mean, that's like how, basically how that's they the act. That's the most accurate analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, did, I, I, I did just remember that there's, in most, if not all Roman Catholic churches, there's a special place that they put the yes. consecrated host afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I remembered this because one was stolen from a cathedral in New York City. Oh, man. It was like worth several million dollars. Gosh. Anyway. That's crazy. It was kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. Is the host the bride? Yes. Okay. It's wafers. <laughs> oh, the Catholics like... usually do the little like cardboard wafers. <laughs> wafers. Like no. Yeah. It's actually interesting that there's like various various traditions use various different things. So like Catholics will use host, which is the wafer stuff. Um, it's very typical in Protestant Presbyterianism, especially that's come from Scotland, to use like the shortbread. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the <laughs> the recipe for it is like 
very important that you yes. get it right because it's been passed down. <laughs> it's <coughs> tradition. For Jewish people, it'd be more le- unleavened bread. So, yeah, I mean, there's w- so many different ways and of doing it. And then if you go it. to Manny Montgomery's church, it's Kit Kats. <laughs> Kit Kats. <Manny laughs> that Montgomery. is hilarious. That's a name I've heard in a minute. That was um, the funniest thing to me. Was the, the, Wait, they their, Kit Kats? Their first communion they did with coffee and Kit Kats. Done. <laughs> So that's transubstantiation. That, I think we all kind of see how that can be uh, weird. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that can't be true all the way, but there's a lot of questions you have to ask. If that's, if that's true, then like... There's way more that should be going on, and I feel like the scripture would actually talk more about it. And the biggest, the biggest one with that is that the, the early church often got accused of cannibalism. Right. Right. Because right. they're like, oh, it turns into literal flesh and blood. <laughs> Which we will talk about where that, that's John 6, that, and we're going to get to that passage of scripture and dissect it. Jesus addresses that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just as that is one of the examples of the things you have to work through. Yes, yes. <laughs> so then you have uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, you know, obviously the reformer in the 1500s, and, um, I mean, great theologian. His belief, he and this other guy, I think his name's Ulrich Zwingli, or Holdrick Zwingli. Um, Zwingli. Zwingli. Yeah, Zwingli. There's a, a, a large argument between these two guys. So this is around 1500. This is 1500 years after Jesus and the early church practiced. They start arguing about what the table really means. Zwingli takes a very symbolic view of the table, meaning there's no like special presence there. It's not the body, the bread is not the body and the wine is not the blood. It's all just a metaphor that, and it's just a practice that we do. And the power comes from reminiscing and focusing on what Christ has done. And uh, Martin Luther took large offense to that. Martin Luther rejected transubstantiation, but he still believed that somehow the bo- the bread was the body and the blo- the wine was the blood. I don't know how it's kind of confusing it's how he rejects transubstantiation. Right, right, exactly. And so um, they got into a large argument, and basically Zwingli was like at the point of tears at one point, like, "Why can't we agree on this?" And Martin Luther's like, "Brother, you need to go seek the Holy Spirit because you are wrong." You need to get revelation, and uh, Martin Luther even went to the to the actual table that they had and carved into the table the Latin phrase "This is my body." So he's taking what Jesus said, extremely literal. This is my body, right? And so that caused a huge division. Zwingli's view is more common in the West. That's pretty much how we view it for most the majority of Christian churches. Um, is that the bread and the wine is just a symbol. And the power comes from just meditating on what Christ has done. When you follow that line of logic, that's why so many of our times of communion are solemn and somber. You know, they're reflecting on what Jesus has done, which is his death. You know, there's a little bit of resurrection there, but most of the time it's thinking about his death dying on the cross for our sins. And so that we've turned the communion time a lot into uh, now is a time to reflect on your sins and how Jesus has taken that. And I don't, I don't take so much offense to that because I don't think that's wrong or like bad. I just think it's half the picture, you know. And we talked about that last week or two weeks ago 
with the whole future aspect. You know, there is a present practice that we're doing in communion. It's the present sacrament that's helping us to look back to see what Jesus has done, to remember and look forward and have a blessed hope of the future. It's all tied together in one act. So I got this one also. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, Luther's theology of the Lord's Supper is more explicitly... So he's looking around at the ways that Catholics at the time were abusing the table right. itself. Um, and his actual view on transubstantiation is not that... He, he disagrees with transubstantiation, yeah. but he believes that Christ is present somehow. Yes, he yes. Re- he apparently refused to actually pin down how that was. Right. But he's still of that opinion that it's kind of the... Yeah, and he still carries this uh, reverence of it where if it spills or if the bread crumbles to the ground, you do something. Like, there's a story of Luther where he accidentally spilled some wine on this woman's dress and, like, he was mortified. Like, absolutely (laughs) mortified. And so they, like, took her dress. I mean, I think they got her... Dress. They didn't just like rip it off of her. Yeah, they, they weren't like that mortified, but they burnt her dress. Yeah. They burnt it because like this was the blood of our Lord Jesus spilled, and like you don't spill the Lord's blood on something insignificant. It, it's costly. So, and so just as an example of that, like the way that they now, like if there's too much wine now, yeah, what they do with it is they like pretty much all altars have a pipe. Uh-huh. In the Lutheran church, that goes down to dirt. Nice. And so they'll pour it down that to get rid of it. Yeah. Or the priest just drinks it. Or the priest just, yeah. Or the, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Not like in the Roman Catholic church, the priest has to drink whatever's left. Uh-huh. That's what they do versus pouring it down the Okay, yep. that's interesting. Yeah. My mom always said some priests would pour extra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 they can make it through the hospital. Just a little bit left. Oh, ah. <laughs> No. But it's almost more like Luther is kind of like, it's magic bread. So yes. something to it, but it's still bread. That's a yeah. great way to put it. <laughs> He's very Whereas much of the... like, well, it totally changes forms. And I'm like, oh, it still tastes like bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's very much of the mind that it's like a, some supernatural thing that's happening. I don't know how to understand it, but I'm going to be prepared for whatever. So I'm going to be very strict on this. Um and then the other view that is also pops up around the same time is John Calvin, the father of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think his view is pretty decent. I think I tend more to his view than the others. Um, and basically what he says is that um, the, the bread is not like the body of Christ and the wine is not like the blood. It's not insignificant, but it's also not like the actual transubstantiation thing. But there is a special presence. It's a sacrament. We used that word two weeks ago. It is a sacrament, meaning it is a visual representation of a supernatural thing. And when we practice this, there is a supernatural like presence of the Lord there with us. Um, and the Lord's doing something. It's called communion for a reason. Communing with God. Yeah. You know, I think the hard part for me is it just leaves so much mis- like to mystery, you know. And... But I just haven't found many other views that, like, actually uh, accurately depict what I think I believe. So I tend more towards John Calvin's view. I I would encourage everyone to go read all the views and, like, understand them all. um, Because I think it's good to know, you know. Well, and and some of the thing is, like, those are the four main views. And most of the stuff beyond that is, like, little stuff. Like, do we do grape juice or do we do wine? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. What kind of bread do we 
Yeah, so yeah. We do a large chunk of bread that we like each take pieces of, and yeah. we like do individual pieces. Yeah. So it's much less important than like what is the actual view of what's going on. Right. Well, and then your view, whatever view you fall under, will uh, cause you to act a certain way about the table. Yeah. So, like Roman Catholics, God forbid you do like Welch's grape juice from Walmart. True. You know, like God forbid you get a loaf of bread from Walmart. Like, whereas the John Calvin view, the well, not even Luther, but Zwingli, yeah, coffee and Kit Kats. I mean, they even looked at the fact that the um, the table was a meal. It was a communal meal in the scripture. Um, and so, like, actually, what my favorite podcast I listened to on the topic of communion was this guy who's from an Anglican church. And he he has such a cool view of communion. Dude, Anglicans know how to party. Yeah, Anglicans are great. <laughs> They're great. And I, I didn't know much about them until this guy, and I thought it was super cool. But, yeah, I mean, his view is so much like, why... Why do we just treat the table as this like funeral dirge, yeah. like this somber song where we come to the table and we reflect on our sin? He's like, that's not bad and that's not like totally wrong, but you're missing out on so much. And we talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the meal that's looking forward to that. Jesus says in, in the Gospels when they practice the Lord's Supper, he says, I desperately wanted to do this, have this meal with you. For I tell you the truth, I'm not going to partake of wine or bread until we partake of it in my Father's kingdom Mm -hmm. again. You know, and so like, Jesus is, I mean, that's staggering to hear that. That Jesus is saying, this is the first thing we're going to do when I come back and get you when we go to heaven. We're going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah, I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah, uh, talks about how Jesus himself will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like he's going to, just like he did at the Last Supper... He's giving us a picture. He gets down. He takes his robe off. He puts on a servant's robes and starts washing all the disciples' feet. And, like, I mean, oh, I get, I, like, the hairs on the ne- back of my neck are just, like, dancing right now. <laughs> because, like, I think about that moment. And how much, how powerful is that to know not only did Jesus die for my sin to make a way, but he died for something that's purposeful. And the purpose is that he wants to bring me into the kingdom and he's going to serve me at the table. He's going to sit there and wash my feet like the savior of the world, the per- God in human flesh is going to wash my feet. And I am not. And that gives you excitement. That gives you joy. That gives you a hope for the future. I mean, oh, it's so cool. Anyway. All right. We, I got off on my tangent. Let's open up our Bibles. Uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So this is a passage that a lot of people use um, because it has a lot of similar language to what's used at the Last Supper and then in 1 Corinthians with uh, um, just talking about the, the Lord's body, eating the bread and drinking the wine. There's a lot of similar language here. Um, but I'm going to basically, I want to point out that Jesus is trying to open their eyes to something completely different. So, John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to, let's see, we're going to read 22 through uh, 29 to start off with. And just to give some context, this is right after Jesus has just fed the 5,000 on the mountain. So Jesus 
breaks the five loaves and the, or two loaves, five fish, or five loaves, two fish, depending on what you know church you come from. Uh, <laughs> they um, he, he basically he's performed this huge miracle, fed over five thousand people, and they want to like crown him king. So Jesus retreats and goes and in, off into the wilderness and hops in a boat and sails to the other side of the lake. So the people are like, what the heck? Where did Jesus go? I can't find him. And they are like, okay, we got to get across the lake. So they all go across the lake and then they find Jesus. So that's the context. Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus, you're probably poor. You probably don't have a lot of money. You probably just got fed a full meal out of a basket of five loaves and two fish. And you're like, this guy's crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So let's read verse 22 through 29. Who wants to read that? I can. Sweet. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Hmm. Okay. So let's just dissect. What are the people thinking? How are they coming to him? And what is Jesus actually saying? Now, I'll be honest. This is a, It's kind of confusing. This, this whole passage can be confusing, which... It's why we have so many different views on communion. The people are coming to him, and they're like, we had our fill of loaves, you know. Why did you leave us? Why did you run away? Mm-hmm. Jesus says, uh, I'm telling you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves, and you, you ate your fill of food. You've been filled. So they're looking at a naturalistic thing. Jesus is pointing mm-hmm. out, you're viewing what I've done as something totally natural that I provided for you. But he's wanting to point them to something more spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. What does verse 27 say? Do not work for the food which perishes, but for, the, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For the, God the Father has set his seal on him. They say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So he, he says, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the p- food that gives eternal life. He's being super metaphorical. Yeah, he's, he's using a physical talk, topic, a talking point, to point to something spiritual. And what does he say in verse 29? He, he answers their question, what is the work of God? 
the work that they're supposed to be following is that you believe in him whom he has sent. These were Jews? Probably, yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Um, in Just in them, that question that they asked. Yeah. Like, what must we do <clears throat> mm-hmm. to be doing the works of God? Because the it's like works of the law. I've been, so I read um, Philippians and Galatians mm-hmm. and recently. Um, and it's so interesting, the focus on, I want to say it's, I think Philippians one I most recently read. And how Paul is so making a case for mm-hmm. not being under like the law, the law. Yeah. yeah, and specifically yeah. not focusing on the works of the law because it cannot bring justification. Mm-hmm. Faith will, and yeah. how he just like not juxtaposes those, but how he builds this case for mm-hmm. faith. Right. So it's made me think a lot about the Jewish mindset in regards to um, righteousness and justification. <clears throat> So, yes. I think that would be the question that, yeah, that yeah. would be asked. Yeah. Because they've also spent a really long time with like, the idea of if we sin, we have to literally take stuff of our own and go sacrifice. Right. That's yeah. the way that we make up for it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's like, this is what is, this is, I'm so glad we're reading this, trying to understand what they're trying to say in their context rather than our own context. Because mm-hmm. we miss so much. But when we read it from a Jewish context, we understand that the whole system had been built on following the law and works of the law. And we've been going through Hebrews, which follows right along with Philippians and those, lays out, like the writer's like, this is your Jewish belief. How much greater is Jesus Christ, the Messiah? You have to remember, too, they are also like, they, they've been promised a Messiah from God. That is a heavy part of Judaism. So they are actively looking for the Messiah. And they, a lot of, even the disciples, Jesus talks about that, um, they're like, uh, they asked Jesus at one point, I think it's in the end of Matthew, and I think it's in the other Gospels too, but they're like, all right, so, oh, it's at the beginning of Acts, actually. Um, at what time will you bring back the kingdom? Will you instill the kingdom? Because they're believing in Jesus as the Messiah in a physical sense, that Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to be a king and a ruler. Right. But Jesus came back as a humble, meek servant. So they're like, all right, this is cool and all. I like what you're doing here, but we were promised a king. We were promised a, like a, a Messiah. And Jesus is like, not yet. <laughs> I'm pointing to something greater. Like that's coming, but not yet. So this is another one of those points where the people are fixated on the physical. It just shows how hardened the Jewish heart was to the spirit of God. Yeah. You know. Go ahead, Cam. The other really small interesting point is you'll notice later on oh, these are probably Jews that not only are they Jews, but they know Jesus. They know Jesus' as dad. Right. Yeah, yeah. So there's an additional um, stumbling point for them because this kid that we knew that grew up with us in a lot of cases was like, what's he talking about? He's like the son of God. Like, what's, Yeah. He's the son of Joseph. Who is We this? know that. <laughs> Who's man? Yeah. Who's man? Yeah. But, but also I'm thinking of... Um, the how this they might link him, the miracle that he did mm-hmm. to a kind of prosperity and thriving yep. that and I just I just think of judges and how when there was a judge for Israel and how they would thrive yeah mm-hmm. um, 
and you know like have the things that they need and they do really well and they would you know triumph over their enemies sure. and whatever and so I wonder if maybe they saw some of like that like yeah. this sort of possibility even though this isn't the same people yeah. right that existed during that time but they would have heard about it yeah. from their fathers and whoever else that would have told them about that history well I'd also I'd go so far as to argue almost definitely because they're reading Old Testament way more regularly true, than yeah. that's their bible that's yeah. their history yeah like, that's true yeah that's probably immediately where they're yeah and go. so that mindset even more so is like what do you mean you're leaving like yeah. what are you talking about right. this is like the father would have I don't know exactly the way that they saw him so to speak um, I haven't done much study of that but even the thought of like God sent you to do this just like we've seen in other times yeah. during history yeah. and to be kind of our leader and to lead us well and, and lead us into prosperity and whatever. You're our Messiah, but the Romans are still right there. What are yeah. you believing? Right. right. Yeah. Yes. You haven't, you haven't, you haven't gone and, I don't know, stabbed a sword through their king. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. They, they Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah. Because it's been occupied by Rome. Because they've got this and, physical idea of yeah. the kingdom. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So, let's get back to this passage. Mm-hmm. What is the work that Jesus is telling them to do? Believe. Believe. Just believe. This feels like the Hebrews teachings. I feel like every chapter... The writer has just been like, believe, 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 don't stop believing. you know, don't stop believing. Don't give up your belief. You know, he's not pointing to specific sins or something like that that causes you to lose eternal life or anything like that. He's saying, just believe Jesus right here. Huh? Hold on to that feeling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> just believe. And that is the work that he's pointing them to. So. This is important to understand the rest of the passage. So when Jesus is talking about the work of his food, of his father, he's not talking about seeking out food that just is coming from the miracles. But he's saying, seek out the food that lasts eternally. Me. Believe in me. Yeah. I am the one the father has sent. I am the food. I am the food. All right. Verse 30 through uh, 40. Let's do 30 through 40. Who wants to read that? Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all, that all, sorry, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
Sweet. All right. What's Jesus trying to tell these people? <laughs> Ye stiff-necked it's people. Me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like, y'all are not getting it. I yeah, am the bread. I, assuredly, I tell you, you're not getting the point. Right. It's me. Right. You're looking for something physical, but the physical thing is me. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you eternal life if you just believe in me. Right. And you're like, but, but he sent us manna. Is that the same situation? Like, <laughs> they're trying to relate it to something like tangible that they know and that they've yeah. experienced. Yeah. And he's like, just trying to break them out. Yeah. Jewish mindset. This happened back then, so is this what you're doing now? Yeah, in the exact same way, too. Yeah. As if it Down from heaven. meant to happen the exact same right. way. You know? When actually it's more progressive and showing, it's revealing more of Jesus as the revelations come. Like, you know, the, the bread in the desert, that all the fathers ate that, and they all died in the desert. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, the manna was great. The, the manna was great. Yeah. Like, it, it sustained them. But they still died in the desert. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I want you to eat the bread of life. The bread that gives life eternally. What does he say the bread is? Verse, I think, 35. I am the bread of life. All right, so here, here let's, let's contrast what he's talking about when he's talking about eating and drinking. Because this is where the Roman Catholics start to, to say, he's talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. Literally. What does he say about his body and his blood? Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. So your hunger is a metaphor for coming to him. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The belief is tied to the thirsting. So Jesus is using a physical sign that the people understand. And this is common in Jesus' teachings. Every parable he's taught has been a, a, a parable that the people would understand in a natural sense. But it's always had a deeper spiritual meaning that only those that are hearing from the Spirit will be able to understand. Right? Without the Spirit, we just read it and say, oh, he's talking about eating his body, and he's talking about drinking his flesh. Like, drinking his blood, don't drink his flesh. That'd be totally wrong. (laughs) And and he goes so far later with his disciples as to, like, explain some of the stories in that way, where he's like, you've been given ears to hear, and they haven't. Yes. Yep. So this is really important to keep in mind because you will run into, especially a lot of uh, Roman Catholics and other like believers that believe in like the sacredness of the table and like the body and the blood that it is his body and blood. They will use this passage to prove their point. And so I wanted to give you this to show you that's not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> it's just a simple misunderstanding of what he's saying. And it's because we're looking at it with natural eyes. We're reading it and not understanding. We have ears, but they don't hear. We have a heart that doesn't understand. Um, so we're going to... Uh, let's keep reading 41 through... Oh, man, this is a long passage. I forgot about that. Let's read 41 through 59. Um, we won't spend a, a ton of time, but I just want to keep on building this picture. So who wants to read that? Cool. Okay, night night, Harvey. We love you. See you in the morning. Is it under there? See you later. Is it under right here? Hey. Bunny, bunny, bunny. I don't know where Bunny is, baby. Bunny goes. Where Bunny goes? 
This is the lion. Not a bunny. Where's bunny ghost? Bunny ghost. Which bunny Probably in her room. Oh, Gabby found it. Oh, you're good. Oh, we can cut this part out. Okay. I love you, bud. We can't let people know that real life has to happen. You want to give her kisses? Kiss her little cheeks. I love you. You want to kiss my cheeks? She's wanting to kiss both cheeks. Okay. Up you climb. All right, night night, Howie. Night, night. We love you. Good job. There you go. She's so working on that name. It's too close to him. Yeah. You said bye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you walked in, she looked at you and looked at me and looked at you. And I think that's what she yeah. was like. Wait, what? I don't know what you can't have the same name. But she knows the name Abby because she loves Sesame Street. She and there's a girl, Abby Kadabby. There you go. All right, Kim, whenever you're ready. 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Isn't this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Mm. Pretty crazy. What are your thoughts? That's all you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sometimes it is hard to have compassion, uh, I think, for the people in in these stories because I'm just like why are y'all not listening <laughs> but I get it they're just in my thinking there's occasionally times where Jesus is like okay they're not going to get it I'm just going to confuse them more <laughs> yeah Jesus is not afraid to speak truth and let you deal with it Yeah, <laughs> pretty interesting I will say one thing that I think we're all guilty of is reading the text and going gosh what a bunch of knuckleheads but I think Israel is like I heard this recently that Israel is like a mirror. Every time you read Israel, it's a hard look at your own self. Yeah. How many times has the Lord told us certain things that are pretty similar, and we go, nah, 
Ah. What are you talking about? Right. Like, yeah. the Lord speaks something to you in a, like, about, maybe not an audible voice, but you know, like, oh, this is probably something, and you go, ah, it's probably nothing. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably something. You know, so it's... And that's what leads me to have compassion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I know that I... It's hard to have compassion, and yeah. that's, like, part of the story of God. God chose probably the most hard-headed people in the Bible yeah. <laughs> to be his chosen people, Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And his faithfulness. God, like, if he had chosen, like, the most pristine, like, awesome people, that's not much of a story for a powerful God. Yeah. That's just him picking favorites, and it'd be, like, what we see in, like, people complain about in the corporate world, like, you know, people being chosen because they're of a certain stature, a certain whatever. Jesus took the least of these, and he's remained faithful, gave all these promises to, I don't know if you've read through, I know we've all probably read through Genesis, but Jacob, when you first start reading about Jacob, you're like, this guy sucks. <laughs> this guy is terrible. Jacob means worm. Yeah. Slimy used car Yeah. And Abraham, like, Abraham lets, like, the Egyptians, like, he offers his wife to the Egyptians to, like, yeah. sleep with him because he's scared. Like, mm-hmm. these are some pretty terrible people that God enters himself into covenant with. Yeah. He didn't have to. He had the whole earth to choose from, yet he chose them. And I think that's beautiful. Like, it's a lot easier to have grace on yourself when you see that God chose us because of how weak we are, yeah. you know? yeah. But this, I think this passage just kind of continues the thought of what Jesus is saying, you know, that I am the bread of life, but I'm not the bread of, that your father's got. This is not the same thing as what the manna coming down from heaven that your father's got, and they were like, oh yeah, we get food for the day. This is very different. This is bread that lasts eternally. And when you eat of my body and drink of my blood, then you will be like have eternal life. But what is he saying? Is he saying that you get saved through the cup and the the drink? Or the bread and the drink? Mm -hmm. No. And actually, you know what's even crazier? This is seven chapters before the Last Supper ever happens. That's never happened before. So this is the first talk of Jesus talking about his body and blood. And he's not talking about a meal sitting at the table drinking bread and wine. He's using this as an analogy to help the people understand a natural concept to see the physical. Come to me. When you eat, come to me. And when you drink, believe in me. And then he says, you know, those, you can't come to me unless you've, you know, come by the Father and all this stuff. But um, let's, let's just read this last portion real quick. Verses 60 through the end, uh, 60 through 70. And I can read it um, unless somebody else wants to read. No, but I do want to... Yeah, go ahead make a comment like the it's kind of poetic his thing of um like you have this need hunger and Mm -hmm. thirst um and this need of honestly i think something to believe in i think everybody needs something to believe in has something that they believe in even if it's not a good thing Mm -hmm. um but having that need and to be close to know him and also because he created us to mm-hmm. believe in him and to be close to him. And so those needs like hunger and thirst. And then he's like, and I am what will fulfill that hunger. Yes. And my sacrifice, that that blood that he sheds, mm-hmm. um, gives us something to believe in, to believe in him. Yeah. And that he can meet those needs that we have. Yep. 
just really poetic kind of the way that he laid that out. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yep. All right. Verse 60 through 70 of John 6. So it says, when they heard this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So now Jesus is just with the disciples. It's not just the 12. We'll see. There's more disciples than just the 12 here. Knowing in himself that his disciples murmured about it, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who do not, did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Then he said, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it were given him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Oof. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Come on, Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Poor Judas. That boy would be getting called out. (laughs) Jesus has been calling him out since the beginning of his ministry. (laughs) But, once again, we see this language again. What does Peter say? That he came and believed. I do have to say, I wonder how much of that is actually Jesus and how much of that is John editorializing. Sure. <laughs> that, that, that's a potential. Because he does do that. Yeah. Can yeah. you explain that? Meaning, did Peter actually say that, or was John saying like did, that to prove it? Did it actually like, say he's talking about Judas? Or is it just John after the fact going, he was talking about Judas? Right. Right, right, right. right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, gotcha. But yeah, the language is really clear. I mean, if you read this passage... Understanding from like the Lord's perspective and hearing in the Spirit, you will see that this passage is very clear. It is not talking about eating his body, flesh and all, or the cup. It's not talking about communion at all. But Jesus is setting a standard for what the eating and drinking here means is coming and believing. And he even says, it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. So if you're listening to the fleshly words, the earthly words, the natural words he's saying, it won't give you anything. You have to understand it with the Spirit. How do you understand from the Spirit? Your Father. and No one can come to me unless it were given to him by the Father. So, and that leads us back into the baptism of the Holy Spirit and hearing from the Father. Like that talk, all, that, all those gifts come from the Father. It comes directly from him. So... Anyway, I share that just to say, guys, this is not proving transubstantiation. And actually, it's just proving even more so that God is saying, like Jesus is basically just saying, come and believe. That's all the invitation is. Don't, you know, it's not follow a certain rule or law or system. It's come and believe. It's super simple. I've heard a pastor say the, uh, the gospel is so simple that even the mentally challenged can understand it and come to believe. And frequently do. And frequently do. So, all right. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to, because we've kind of gone longer, we're about an hour now, so I kind of want to, I don't want to speed through it, but I'm going to just glance over some things before we get into the meat of this passage uh, to set up some context. And I expect everyone to read it 
on your own, you know, because it's good. All right, 1 Corinthians 8 through 11 is really the context we need for Paul talking about this communion uh, issue. Um, Just an overview, chapter 8, Paul is talking about food that was offered to idols. So in in those days, there was all this food that was being sold in the marketplace that had originally been sacrificed to idols, and then it was like leftover, so they sold it in the markets. It was extra cheap, so that's why a lot of Christians were like, Bruh. (laughs) I read a commentary. It was pretty funny. He was like, uh, one thing has stood the test of time. Christians love a good deal. (laughs) I was like, that's pretty good. (laughs) I don't know if if he talks about this before, but Mm -hmm. the Jews have a problem with it because there's a a law about not eating things sacrificed. Right, right. And the Christians that weren't Jewish don't care. Right. Because they didn't grow up with that law. Yeah, so there's this... There's a, th- that's where he's addressing it, exactly. Uh, there's two sides. There's people who are like, dude, this is like food sacrificed to idols, which is sacri- idols are inanimate objects that house demons, is the, the Jewish belief. And, then and so. People going, and? It's <laughs> cheaper. Yeah, right. And it's on sale for one ninety nine. It's the Chuck and Cluck sale, you know? Uh, no, they're. So you have these two sides. One is like looking back to the Old Testament law, and one is looking forward to the the freedom that we have in the Spirit. And Paul basically says in uh, chapter 8, verse verse 8, verse 7 and verse 8, we'll read that. Not everyone has this knowledge. Some being accustomed to the idol until now eat the food as a thing offered to an idol. So their weak conscience is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. Neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. So that's the point Paul's saying is like, I don't care. <laughs> He's basically saying, what is your conscience? Go with that. Yeah, because yeah. don't go against your conscience. Then and he yeah. does sort of eventually come around to the, the weaker brother idea, which is like, if you're going to eat with your friend and you bought it on the idol sale, right, right. either don't serve it to him or don't tell him. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. It's like the the rest of the chapter. Yeah, he's saying if you don't think of yourself greater than somebody because you abstain, mm-hmm. there's two sides: the abstainers and the partakers. <laughs> the abstainers shouldn't say, "Oh, well, we're better than the partakers because we are holier. Clean. We we're clean. We don't deal with that stuff. We we understand the law." Right. And then the partakers, they they might just be flexing their freedom. In Christ and saying like we can eat it because ain't no demon gonna touch me, you know like I don't care, and so it but that would cause a Jewish person to stumble. So what what is Paul trying to get at? Stop thinking of yourselves, you knuckleheads! Like (laughs) you guys are such morons. Like don't. And and he's he's, not how you get your salvation, right? And he's basically saying it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't like what matters is that your conscience is good and clean before the Lord. And also that uh, you're not arguing with one another and dividing over yeah. something, and so that's that, I mean that's a pretty awesome topic. Now his tone changes a little once we get to chapter ten, but I'm not going to go to that just yet. So chapter nine in First Corinthians, Paul basically goes on a whole rant talking about him being an apostle, and as an apostle, should I not? Uh, be fed by the gospel. Like, if I'm working for the gospel, should the gospel not feed me? You know, should I not be uh, adequately um, compensated for my work? You know, for a worker is worth his wages. 
And then there's a, a part in here um, that he is drawing on the um, Leviticus chapter 7, I think it's verses 30 through 33, but it's this um, this law that was in Leviticus where there is a peace offering to the Lord. So there's all these different offerings, you know, the offering of atonement, a bunch of other offerings, peace offering, and uh, the basically the way that the Lord instituted it was that the Levites, the priests, would take the peace offering from the people and they would offer it to the Lord, but the Lord also... Uh, allowed those priests to partake into that offering, right? So they were able to eat from the offering, and they were sustained for their work they did on behalf of the people mm-hmm. by the peace offering from the people. So, and basically, the the way it's painted in the in Leviticus is like this meal was like a communion meal between the the priests and the Lord. It's like twenty nine to thirty five. Twenty nine to thirty five. Yeah, cool. Right area. Yeah, yeah. So go. You should read that and just give you some more context because Paul always is pulling from the Old Testament. I mean, it's just awesome how he does it. That's his jam. Yeah. He's a Pharisee. Pharisee of Pharisees. Yeah. Like, yep. He knows it. He knows it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he, he that, the best part is he translates it to now, you know, mm-hmm. which is really cool. But, so anyway, there's this idea that the priests shared in the meal that the offerings, the sacrifices of the people, and it was a communion fellowship with the Lord that they ate. And it sustained them, right? So this is just a, an idea that Paul's kind of throwing in here, sprinkling in, and then he'll use it later. Um, but right now he's just talking about, yeah, um, you know, this as an apostle, I should be paid from the gospel. Like, it's, it's right for me to take, you know, but I don't take. He says that. I don't use my privilege to take all that stuff. He's like, I've become all things to all men. Paul's awesome. All right, so chapter 10 is when he starts talking about um, the the communion stuff, and he's talking back again. He comes back to this food sacrifice to idols thing, and he kind of changes his tone because he's talking about this word koinonia, which we will see multiple times. It's actually part of our vision statement that we are a fellowship of koinonia, um, or a koinonia fellowship. Um, so we're not going to read the whole passage here, but I'm going to start us in verse 14, and we're going to go to verse 22. Um, does somebody want to read that? 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Sure, I can. Cool. Um, therefore, my beloved, beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not it is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because what I'm reading to mm-hmm. no, keep going. Uh, Twenty two. Uh-huh. Um, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Mm. 
kind of a hard passage. And once again, this is all stuff that I, I want you guys to go read on your own. Like, study it on your own. Read the commentary because it'll make it a lot more clear. But the main point here that I, I really enjoy is that through verse 14 through 22, there's at least four different times that he uses the word koinonia. Um, when he talks about the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the participation or the communion of the blood of Christ? Um, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And then he talks even about the koinonia, um, that the Gentiles, that which they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. I do not want you to have fellowship or koinonia with demons. So koinonia, when you look at the word in the Greek, is this word that implies like fellowship and a sharing. And it's actually like a word that's used for intercourse in, in like the intimacy. Greek. Intimacy. Um, you know, but it's where we get the word coitus from. Coitus, right, exactly. So, I mean, they, don't don't get weird about it, you know. Coitus. It's just, no, it's coitus. I know. Someone had to say it. This, yeah. this, <laughs> the Catholics <laughs> taking everything so literal. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, this is where, like, understanding the word really helps us understand the mood of what Paul's trying to say. So he's talking about the cup of communion and the bread of communion. Is it not a participation, a fellowship, an intermingling, like in, in I don't want to say intercourse, but an intimacy with Jesus, with his body, with his blood? Who's Jesus' body? The fellowship of believers. What's his blood? The, the, the new covenant. It's like being apart with him. And so when we have communion, it's this idea of a sharing of life with him, with Jesus. But that sharing of life with Jesus leads us to loving our, what were we talking about before? Our loving ourselves leads us to loving God. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. What out of the last three hours have we been talking about? No, we talked about the the flow of love from the Father. Love God, love yourself, love others. Yep. And that loving God first helps fill us up. So when we love God, we can love ourselves rightly, which leads us to love one another. Mm-hmm. And that's the flow of love in our lives. This is another part of that. And talking about like communion is not just something you take by yourself. It's supposed to be done within the body. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So now Paul's coming back to that food sacrifice to idols thing. And he's, what is he saying? I don't want you to have fellowship intermingling, intertwining, uh, shacking up. With demons. You can't be part of that body you, in this one. You're right. He says right. you can't be one in this side, one in the other. you got to be full in. And so this is like what he's painting a picture of when it comes to the next chapter where he talks about when you shouldn't and when you should take it. But like, they, it's just, it's pretty clear what he's saying. is just, it's a communion with the Father and it's holy. It's like, it's not something to be taken lightly or defiled. Um, so, Cam, were you going to say something? You had yeah, your finger up. Uh, no one can serve two masters. For either he will mm-hmm. the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Matthew <clears throat> Yep. A house divided cannot stand. I mean, there's like so many passages you that... Split your loyalty. Right. Yeah. And this is nothing new. This has never been new. He's like, you know, you Jews got it right. You Gentile Christians, you also have it right. right. Here's the main point. Don't fellowship with demons. The last part of that, he's, of that passage, he starts talking about, you know, go ahead and eat whatever's in the market. You know, don't worry about that. Basically, he's saying, 
that he's more concerned less about the the meat, but he's more concerned about the atmosphere in which the meat was sold because there were restaurants within these temples. Like someone would say, "Hey, you want to go out to eat at Arby's? It's right there at Zeus's temple," and that was all the <laughs> leftover meat that was being had been sacrificed to demons or was just left over. That is food sacrifice to yeah. demons. That's for sure. <laughs> at least I feel like you it. Don't want to <laughs> yeah. No roast beef for me. No, <laughs> so he's saying that. When you go to the table of that place, there's a an mm-hmm. atmosphere there that is uh, demonic, if, that, if you will. Maybe it's not a demonic fellowship, but the the mood and the atmosphere of the restaurant, the area, is more catered to demons. Now, when you take that meat outside of that area, it's like it's just meat. Like if I take it back to my church, it's just meat. You know, we can get into a whole well, conversation on that. And also, what it means for the person offering the food to you, right? Like right. for you partaking, what does it do to their conscience, right? And what does it lead them to believe? Yeah, yeah. Because I think there's somewhere in here where he's like, he'd rather. I don't, I don't think it was cut off his arm, but something. It was a very yeah, yeah. It was quite the image. Yeah, that he'd rather do that than to cause his brother to stumble. To stumble, right? And yeah. I think that the spirit of of that is more. It's not just about what's okay for me, but also how, is it going to cause a stumbling block yeah. for you? Yeah. And if so, it's better for me not to partake, yeah. even though it's okay for me to do this. Right. But in your presence, I don't want to cause you to stumble. Mm-hmm. And so let me just... Not. Let me just scooch. Yep, perfect. Yep. All right, let's go to the next chapter. We're going to wrap this up here. So this is where Paul starts really talking about the Lord's Supper we got all this context just to help us understand what he's trying to say here. Um, so we're going to read chapter 11, verse 17 through, I mean, the end. Um, so does somebody want to read that? Or I can read it if nobody else wants to. I can do it. Okay, cool. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better before the worst. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you think? (laughs) What? (laughs) Do you... Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you do, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed and took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Hmm. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. <laughs> it's like, ah, what were the other things? <laughs> oh. <laughs> he wasn't thinking that this was going to last forever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What were you going to say, Cam? So, uh, last two, two weeks ago, uh-huh. when you had me read when we were yes. doing communion, uh-huh. this chunk, like the with it split in there between 24 and 25, uh-huh. that's why my dad always does one and we all do it communally. Yeah. And then yeah. the other one. So yeah. That's, that's why I split it up. That I love it. We did that. Oh, yeah. I think it's awesome. All right, so let's let's do a, a brief synopsis. That first chunk of verses was 17 through like 22. And Paul's just saying, you know, when you guys have come together for the Lord's Supper, talking to the Corinthian church, I am not happy about this. <laughs> I do not commend you. Why would I commend you for what you're doing? Because first off, there's divisions among you. So that could be a number of different things. Uh, I think it probably relates to the Gentile versus Jewish, you know, uh, division. There's those who celebrate their freedom and then others who are like so traditional and they can't see eye to eye and so they're starting to divide. Um, Not great, you know, and that that was just something that was naturally going to happen, you know, I think. Um, And, but he, what is Paul, what is Paul pointing to here? If the problem is division, what is the solution? Unity. Yeah, yeah. Very simple. Very simple. Multiplication. Division. Uh No. So, um, unity. Unity amongst the believers. Unity among the body. Okay. Um, so then he goes on. He talks about um, you come together into one place. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They're probably like, but we call it the Lord's Supper. We do it in there he's like that is not it because what's the difference between the gospel account and the uh corinthian account he's like go ahead to borrow from what we were talking about earlier it's all in your approach to the table right luther's right yeah you're not approaching it the right way right well and they're looking at it as a meal so this was like a huge fellowship meal for however big their church was which i think the corinthian church was one of the bigger churches Mm -hmm. It's probably a pretty big meal. And so what's happening is you got all these people from all kinds of different socioeconomic statuses, probably different races, probably different like religious backgrounds, all this stuff. All these people are coming together to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is uh, shown to us in the Gospels by you know Jesus setting the standard. He gets down before anything starts, washes everybody's feet, and then he serves everyone there. Right? That's what it's supposed to be like. They're coming to the table... And they're like beasts. I mean, you got people who are like uh, coming up and like eating all the food or drinking all the wine. Some people are so, they drink so much wine they're drunk and others haven't even gotten a, a drop. And actually it's implied that there's some uh, some factions uh, regarding like wealth status. That the wealthy were the ones who were getting first dibs at the table and the poor were being neglected. Which, big no-no for the early church because what is the church... Uh, what is the church's goal if not caring for the poor, widows, orphans? Yeah. True religion is this. Yeah. So this is all the things that's going on that's causing them to go haywire. They're just they're treating it like 
it's their last meal on earth. <laughs> Paul's like, don't you knuckleheads have homes? <laughs> yeah. I think that's so funny. I'm like, that would be really offensive today. Because, <laughs> like, not all of us have homes. <laughs> um, so then he reiterates the Lord's Supper, you know, shares that whole process. And it's literally the same as what Jesus says. He does add in that last verse, as often as you eat and drink this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim, present, Lord's death, past, till he comes, future. It's all right there. I mean, beautiful. Like, it is a a sacrament. Um, And then he goes into the last part, talking about partaking of the supper unworthily. And this is, you know, I think Angel, too bad he's not here, um, <clears throat> Angel was asking about like what does it mean to eat it worthily, you know? And I think we've all had that question. Yeah, how do you examine your heart, right? So you have to go with context. You can't just read that and go examine my heart. That means every sin I've ever committed. I can't come to the table without any of that. Is not what Paul is saying. You have to read the context. What is the context he just set up for us? Divisions among you, treating the Lord's Supper as like your last meal on earth. And neglecting those around you. I mean, it's all selfishness and pride. So, he says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, you will be guilty of the blood and of the bread, of the body. I mean, that is like, that's where I start to think about like Luther, who had a very strict view of the, the body and the blood. And I can see where he would get that because Paul's pretty clear, like, you will be guilty of his blood and his body if you take this in an unworthy manner. He often then goes on to say that some of you have been sick. Some of you have even died. I think somebody brought up that, was it spiritual death or physical death? or It doesn't matter. Either way, it's bad. <laughs> spiritual death, physical death. But I, I'm pretty sure it was physical. Mm-hmm. And like Paul would have probably said, some of you have spiritually died and explained what he meant by that. Also being like ill. Right, right. Physical. Yeah, there's no indication that it would be spiritual. It's more of a physical thing. So people are, and uh, it's crazy to think that Paul, like, discerned this, you know? Like, it'd be like me coming to church, and we've been taking communion for the last few weeks, and all of us have been getting sick, and, like, even somebody died. It's like, there's so many reasons for that. (laughs) Like, I could say, like, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Could be that, you know, some people don't wash their hands. I would have never thought that when we were taking the Lord's Supper in vain but Paul discerned that and said this is what's happening you're taking the supper in vain you're not discerning the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus you're not discerning that this is what it means to be a part of the body and blood is being united and thinking of one another and laying out your life for them and so you're drinking in judgment on yourself and judgment he says is good he goes on at the end talking about judgment when we are judged we are disciplined by the Lord so that we would not be condemned by, like the world. Mm-hmm. The, the Hebrews talks about it too. Like You can't call yourself a son if you don't subject yourself to the f- discipline of your father. Right. And what father doesn't discipline his children? Mm-hmm. Like That's no father at all. So discipline is good. This is the discipline of the Lord that we would get sick and die mm-hmm. if we're taking it unworthily. Mm-hmm. It's, because it's not good for us if we're taking it unworthily. We think we're doing it right, but we are not. So, does anybody have any thoughts on that? I just kind of rifle scatter shot through that whole thing and kind of laid it out. But I think I have a thought in terms of um, what it means to do it in a worthy manner, mm-hmm. knowing what 
the eating of the bread means uh -huh. so coming to coming to know mm -hmm. Jesus and um, and then also drinking by believing. I would think. <laughs> we'll see you later. No, it's okay. I, we're going pretty long. <clears throat> I would think that those things also would be a part of what it means to be in a worthy manner. Yeah. Knowing that that's what it's symbolizing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a great thought. Yeah, so this is to where I start to expand on my uh, belief on it because when I always when I took the table they would say stuff like examine yourself and if you have any hidden sin then you know you need to get rid of it before you partake in the Lord's table I don't think that's what Paul's saying do I think that's a bad thing to examine yourself and find out if you've got some hidden sin no I think that's a good thing but it shouldn't exclude you from the table unless it's a sin that is causing division amongst you and your the body um, and I mean, honestly, you could probably say that you being in secret sin is causing division because you are not fully real with one another. So, you know, you could follow that rabbit trail down one way or the other. Uh, I'm, I guess I would be, to me, what is Paul? <clears throat> you brought up the thing earlier, came about the, uh, like us kind of clo the closed table idea and those in the church who are like leaders and elders kind of saying, okay, these people should not partake in the meal. You know, the those who are unbelievers and children and stuff like that. And I do think that we have a responsibility to make sure that is spoken each time, especially when those people are present. Mm -hmm. But the onus is put on who in this passage by Paul? Let a man examine himself. He doesn't say let the elders discern whether people are not in the... No. Because, like, this is what Paul's going back to, what we talked about in chapter 8, 9, and 10, you know, it's your conscience. He, he wants you to connect with the Lord. He doesn't tell you, this is what you have to do. Like, you should not eat food sacrificed to idols, or you should eat food sacrificed to idols. He says, no, do it with a clear conscience, whatever you do, and don't cause one another to stumble. So, when this let a man examine himself is saying, each man has power to say, I can freely eat at the Lord's table, or I'm not in a place to eat at the Lord's table right now. And I'm not going to because I'm going to drink judgment on myself or eat judgment on myself. And I'd rather just go deal with this before I get judged because <laughs> the Lord's already shown it to me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What if you, like, what if you've repented but you haven't fixed the scenario? Like, I'm thinking personally, I have something that I'm working through. I've yeah. repented of what's going on in my heart, but I haven't like made it right with the other person. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, is it... Situation? So you have to discern whether is it causing division between you. Because if they don't... Like, in your situation, if that person doesn't think there's a division, like, there's no sign of it, and you feel like the thing that was causing division you've dealt with, but you just haven't talked about it in person, I feel like there's not a division. Yeah. There was a division in your heart, but you dealt with it. Right. And My hand so, was up, but now it's Right. Down, so now it's, your hand's down. Okay. So it's kind of open. But that's just, I, I could be wrong, and that's where I would just revert back to saying, and it seems like the easy cop-out answer, but ask the Lord. Yeah. yeah. Father, like, not should I? Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's this whole idea that the the church is made up of people who are accountable to the Lord first. Mm. And like we, we are accountable to men as well, and we should be, but we have to be accountable to the Lord first. The Lord will discipline his people. And like, I think a lot of the church has, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, you see how they practice. Uh, I don't want to just dump on the Catholics. They, there's plenty of good things that they do. But the the idea of like have, having to have the priests serve you this, and you when you go to eat the table, there's, there's a beautiful part about that of being like a picture of Jesus, how Jesus serves you. I think um, Southside had Emma... Um, do communion with them, and she felt like she was supposed to serve it to everybody. And Southside did communion, and Emma elected. To yes. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a Southside decision. It right. Like it was like a spirit specifically serve it to yeah. each person, which was awesome. And that exactly, and that was like it was a, a thing that the Lord wanted to do in the moment. And from what I've heard, everyone who was there was like, it was awesome. It mm-hmm. felt like. And it was like a picture of Jesus serving. And so Emma was taking that role of like a servant. And that's, that's beautiful. But I see so many people in churches taking that role not as a servant and more as a taskmaster of like, especially in the Catholic Church, you know, you want your forgiveness. Because when they, with, with communion in the Catholic Church, that's your salvation. That's how you stay saved. And if you take you it multiple times throughout the week, before. you can get your family out of like purgatory early or something like that. Yeah. Weird stuff. They have to have like last rites and stuff. Right. You know, who do you confide in when you've sinned? The priest. All the power is in the hands of the priest because they stand in the stead of God, which if anybody ever says that, That's boy, you better... Martin Luther had problems. Run! Yes. <laughs> Run! Like, oh my gosh. If you well, have to say that, it's just... Having having been good. a sacristan for an Anglican church, mm-hmm. it is really cool to be... The person that has one of the elements yeah. is able to go, this is yeah. the body, or this is the blood. Exactly. And there's such good in it. It's just, what is, what's the differentiator is, is the heart. Yeah. Like, a heart of a servant versus a heart of someone who's abusing leadership. Mm-hmm. Right. Someone who's taking that leadership role as, I'm better than you, I'm greater than you, I'm above you because the Lord's put me in the establishment to be over the table. It's like, get out of here with that. Like we are one, we yeah. are one, we are the body. The whole body I don't is care. Communion and unity. Yeah, right. yeah. It's not very unified to feel above someone. And it, the the only people that really could, you know, take some like authority that probably have earned it is probably the disciples and Jesus. And every single one of them followed the same uh, method, which was Philippians two, the emptying of themselves. You know, mm-hmm. Christ emptied himself out. He came to earth. He was God in human form, and he could have come in and just said all y'all bow down to me right now. Like, because I am worthy, you know? And, like, you guys are a bunch of trash people, and you're lucky that I haven't left you alive. So if you want to live, you better come to me now. Like, you know how easy that could have been for Jesus? But he came in the total different... He pulled the 180 card on every person in the, in the world and said, no, I'm going to lead as a servant. Yeah. I'm going to lead from my knees. I'm going to lead from the feet up. Like, that is the the picture of true leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm getting on a tangent now, but that that's pretty much all that I have on communion. And I, I do have like kind of a wrap up that I would just like to share. Oh, look, I think my note didn't save what I wrote this morning. Sadness. It's okay. How much do I remember? I actually remember pretty much most of it. But when we practice communion, um, I think just from what I read in scripture is that we believe that 
It is a physical act that we perform to remember the past so that we can look to the future. In this practice, the Lord is present in a different way. And I don't know what that way looks like all the time. And I think, and this is one thing I didn't get to share on too much today. We'll share on it more at some point, I guess. But, like, faith, man. Faith and belief is what makes this happen. If we come to the table and just believe that we're just eating a piece of bread and drinking a glass of grape juice and that's it, then that's what you're going to get. But when you believe that this is a communion, a fellowship, an intertwining and an intermingling with the Father, that He is present in this very place, then it, it opens the door for the Holy Spirit to move in a way in which He wants to move. Yeah. Does that make we'll sense? For it. We'll be looking for it. Like, you have to come with expectation. And how many times do we come to church just thinking, oh, this is just another day where I get to hang out with my pals. We'll probably tell some testimonies. We'll hear a long, long word and then do some worship, you know. No, like, that's not, like, I want our hearts to be, like, touched by this promise that God wants to intertwine with us. He wants our blood, our, our flesh and our blood to intertwine, be one with him. I can't even express how much that is, like, significant. And that when we, if we, like, even more so if we came as a body together, all of us believing the same thing, like, all I can think about is Acts 2, you know, when, like, the Spirit moved in the room and they received, like, the the gift of tongues. I'm not saying that's always going to happen, and I'm not saying that, like, that's the formula that gets you there. It can't hurt. Yeah. You know? And I think this is literally what Paul's trying to bring us to a point to is that Communion is a, a fellowship, a koinonia with God, which is also a koinonia with the family of God and the body of believers. Mm-hmm. And so when we practice uh, our, our communion, like, I don't even know if I want to do, like, the specific cup and specific bread because I think so much of it was formed around a table. And it wasn't just this table that sat up front in the church, but it was a table that was shared a koinonia table where mm-hmm. everyone's hanging out. And Matt's talked about this a little bit. I talked about it with him. But, like, that it, the context of the fellowship meal, or the communion meal, was a meal mm-hmm. where it was shared with one another. And it was a specific spot in there. I don't, and that's, I don't think you need to get picky on it. I don't think it, you have to have a certain bread, a certain loaf, unleavened flour, all this stuff, grape juice, wine. All that matters is that you come to it with faith and that you're practicing it how the Lord would have it practiced, which is practicing the sacrament of being united and being in a sacred assembly with one another and the sacrament of communion, which is present, believing in him, doing the act, and believing in what he did and believing in what he'll do in the future. Believe, believe, believe. So that's, I think that's all I have, but... Does anybody have, like, questions or comments, like, adding on to that? Feels pretty good? Cool. Cool. You're welcome. Like I said, there's probably still plenty of questions, like, how do you examine yourself? You know? How, like, what, I don't know. Is What does the presence look like? How do I know if I'm encountering God? All this stuff. And that's where I'm just going to refer back to Paul and say... You do that. (laughs) You figure that out.
or say the rest I'll deal with when I come see you next. (laughs) 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 Ah, I hate that man. I'm like, there's some cool stuff too. When you read like the, the Didache, which Cam probably knows a little bit about that. The Didache was the early church document, um, that basically almost gave like a full liturgy of like what the church believed at the time for the early believers. It's kind of a weird, I don't know all the way how much stock you can put into it because it was a early document that was written around the two, three hundreds, but was passed down through like, uh, oral, oral, oral tradition. Thank you. Oratorial tradition. And, uh, but it was lost for a long time until like the 1800s and then it was found and then, you know, came back. But, so, you know, you don't know what happened. It could be real, could be not. Um, but one of the things that they talk about is that John 6 passage and they talk about how when they practice the table, they say a prayer during the, the communion that uh, just as the bread was given to all the people that were present there, it spread out to all these people and came back with leftovers and the the way they interpreted that apparently was like that lord let your church be gathered from the ends of the earth mm-hmm. and more than went out like the the bread went out and even more came back in and mm-hmm. then they end up saying maranatha come lord jesus and i'm like Ooh. <laughs> anytime you say maranatha you got me <laughs> You know, so th- there's so much you can learn about it, and like I would encourage everyone to really look into it because I know this can be a super powerful thing. Um, and yeah, I feel like I'm starting to talk in circles, so I'm gonna pray. And um, yeah, so Father, we just love you. We just thank you so much for the table. We thank you for communion that you 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 said you eagerly desired to have that meal with your disciples. We believe that you eagerly desire to have that meal with us one day in your kingdom. And we just want to say that we eagerly desire you. God, I just pray that you would put a longing in our hearts for you that uh, goes beyond knowledge, goes beyond understanding. God, that we would be desperate for you. That we would come to the table not just expecting the same old, same old, but every time we came to the table that we would expect you to be there. Because you've promised it, that you you are present and you want to be intertwined with us. That you want to be in koinonia with us. And so we accept your invitation. We say, come Lord Jesus, have your way. And we just love you. Um, Like I said, I just pray for a desperation, like a a heart that uh, is just so in love with you that we wouldn't be able to stand another day without your presence that we would just want to practice communion because there's a promise there of being united with you. And like that we would even grow discontent in our life of not being connected with you. That we would grow so discontented that we would say, I have to get to the table with my family. I have to be united with you. I have to be in your presence. Um, That that would just be a a thing that marks us and, and makes us different from the world is that we are a people that aren't just willingly servants, but we are willingly in love with you. Um, So, yeah, we just thank you. Um, Thank you that you just continue to teach this thing to each one of us and give us deeper revelation. Um, And, yeah, we just honor you and we praise you for all that you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen.
Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've been blessed by today's teaching. And as always, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Have my heart